Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. You're with Bharati Jagdish. Now, food security has risen to the forefront among key concerns for Singaporeans. What with the recent ban or restrictions on the export of food supply imposed by many countries. When Malaysia stopped its chicken exports, you remember, Singapore had to brace for a traumatic disruption. Consumers had to adjust to a 10 to 30% price hike. Now, besides geopolitical issues causing major disruptions to global food supplies, the pandemic, I'm sure many would agree, has also significantly impacted the global agricultural landscape. Singapore, don't forget, has an ambition of 30 by 30. It aims to build its agri-food industry's capability and capacity to produce 30% of our nutritional needs locally and sustainably by 2030. To find out more, we're joined now by Dr. Benjamin Smith. He's Director of Fresh. Now, Fresh is the future-ready Food Safety Hub, and it's a partnership by ASTAR, the Singapore Food Agency, and the Nanyang Technological University. He's also Director of ASTAR Innovations in Food and Chemical Safety Program. Hi, Benjamin. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Benjamin, let's get into this. The supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic, of course, they have further highlighted the challenges of importing food here. What implications do the latest developments have on Singapore's 30 by 30 vision? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Being an island state with greater than 90% of our food imported, any impact on that supply chain can have a big impact on our food supply. So this makes the 30 by 30 goals of Singapore um, extremely important to reach because a key part of ensuring food security is making sure that we have the right um, technology and approaches to ensure that we have food here on the ground in Singapore that we can rely on when times get tough. Thing is, amid solutions such as diversification of food sources, what really is the role of novel food and the alternative protein industry cell cultured meat for Singapore's vision, food security vision in general? Yeah, it, it, it's it's always the big question when new things come on the market as to what role they're actually going to, to play. And I think what we have to look at with uh, novel foods is that they're one solution in our toolbox at the moment to meet this food security need. But they are an extremely interesting solution where a lot of um, scope and capabilities are coming in to um, build the right food sources, the right protein sources for Singaporeans and also other consumers globally. And what's really interesting about many of these novel proteins like microbial-based proteins and um, cellular-based meats is that we're looking at technologies that don't require a lot of agricultural land to produce. So in a country like Singapore, where we have the technology to uh, do cell culture, um, uh, produce our products through these uh, new types of lab-grown um, facilities, it offers us a one solution to helping meet these 30 by 30 goals and our food security goals. Let's talk about safety before we go to the environmental impact of all of this. What are the top considerations, would you say, for cultivated meats and seafood going to market specifically on safety assessment guidelines? I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I don't really know what goes into all of this food. It's so It seems so highly processed. Is it really nutritious? Is it really safe? Yeah, no, a great question. And I think 
that when it comes to uh, putting food on the table, we have to uh, realise that safety is the number one factor. And here in Singapore, we have a great food safety system with the Singapore Food um, Agency really looking closely at what's hitting the plates of Singaporeans. Um, and uh, when we think about many of these novel foods, there are a lot of questions to ask about how the uh, foods are being processed mm. and understanding how um, uh, they're composed. But if we think about it, the same sorts of questions could be asked about other types of foods hitting our plate. So really what we're trying to do when we look at these novel foods is understand what are the ingredients in them, what are the components, and then how those components are actually going to be um, dealt with by the body, um, how they're going to be broken down, digested, and um, uh, used for either nutrients or excreted. And so we're looking very carefully at how these foods are made, how they're processed, and ensuring that the components of them are safe, and hence the foods are safe that are hitting our table. How can you tell, though, because some might say that some of these side effects, so to speak, or the negative effects of certain types of processed foods would only come to light after many, many years when you can actually do longitudinal studies of sorts. So explain to us that process of ensuring that whatever goes in and however it's processed, it is safe. How you actually go about determining that? Sure. So. So the way that we, we tend to look at um, many of these uh, food ingredients, whether it's novel or not, is that we're looking very much at how we can understand their effects at um, high doses in various types of safety tests. And then we're looking at how to compare that against a diet um, over a lifetime in, in a, a standard consumer. So we're taking the data um, that we generate um, in various different types of studies, such as uh, cellular studies, to look at how these materials may have an effect um, on our body, and then using this as a guide to set safe levels of intake. And we're looking to, with many of these materials, to keep that level of intake um, are well away from these safety levels. So we're looking to have really low levels in the products that um, uh, give us the right uh, protein levels, give us the right nutrient levels, but uh, maintain um, uh, safety for the consumer. So very similar to what we would do for a normal um, food ingredient that hits the market, a food additive. Right. So you would also look at the other additives that they're using, the chemicals they might be using as well, right? Yes, definitely. It's, a, it's a, all a part of breaking it down into its components and understanding how those components come together to form the final food. Is there more you can add in terms of the regulatory process of going lab to fork for cultivated meat, seafood companies in Singapore? Yeah, well, this is, is really where I think uh, Singapore has been one of the, um, uh, well, it has been the first country, of course, to bring cellular meat to, to the market and a very forward thinking. And one of the key aspects in these new fields is understanding that as we develop new products, we also need to develop the safety processes and regulatory processes side by side. And so Singapore have put in a very proactive approach to understanding novel foods and to bringing the right data to the the 
assessors, which is the Singapore Food Agency. Um, and they do that by having an interactive process between uh, the industry and the regulators where new companies and, and new products being brought to the market can be discussed um, directly with the regulators and they can understand and look at the types of data that are coming in. Um, then, of course, the actual approval is um, done on the uh, government side. It's done with um, a, a separate body of assessors so that there's no conflict. Um, but they're looking very carefully at that data to make sure that what hits our plate is safe and nutritious. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the environmental impacts as well, because environmentalists have long bemoaned the detrimental impact of industrial farming, right? While novel foods can be seen as an alternative to industrial farming, what is the environmental impact of the manufacturing processes of normal foods? I mean, they need factories and plants to do all of this, right? To what extent might such solutions have a less negative impact on the environment, maybe even a positive impact, in addition to providing food security? Sure, um, and a great question, Bharati, and I think it's one that a lot of people are asking. I will caveat that my area is food safety yes, um, sure. more so than environmental. Um, but it's one of these questions when you're comparing any technology and any process, mm. um, there's a, a range of pros and cons. And so we can see that definitely certain agricultural practices do have an impact on the environment, but equally certain um, uh, industrial practices and food manufacturing practices may have an impact as well. So a lot of um, plant and microbial fermentation processes, as an example, do use um, uh, quite a lot of water. So it's not so much a factor of saying one is better than the other, but looking at how these different processes can be improved or and, and what their impact may be and using it as a balanced solution to meet our um, ecosystem's needs and meet it, whether that's environmental and or for food security. I'm sure that a lot of experts are looking into all of this as well. What's more harmful, even comparing the two, industrial farming versus processing food within factories. But thanks for addressing that issue, even though I know that it's not your area of expertise. Here's something that is, though, I know. I know, Dr. Smith, that you were one of the leading researchers for the assessment of artificial and natural sweetness in packaged non-alcoholic beverages sold on the Singapore market. Let's talk about this Nutrigrade scheme. How exactly does it work for freshly made drinks? Sure. So the, the Nutrigrade scheme is a, a really interesting scheme that's been brought in by um, the Health Promotion Board to provide consumers with information on the products that they're, they're consuming with regard to uh, things like sugar and fat levels. Um, and really the whole um, approach is built around giving consumers the right level of information to make an informed choice. Now, let me be clear a little bit of sugar, a little bit of fat. It's, it's not bad for you. We need these, these uh, components in our diet, but it's all in moderation. It's all in balance. And this is really where the, uh, the nutri-grade labeling system is very important. Now, um, where we're seeing it coming uh, up into the uh, discussion for again is with regard to over-the-counter drinks. So when you have a labeling system on packaged foods in the supermarket, it's very easy to put this sort of information 
on um, on the product. But when people are buying a lot of um, over-the-counter products, mm. typically the labeling is, is, is missing. You're getting it in a, a paper cup or a plastic cup. And yeah. so now um, by saying over-the-counter drinks need to have the information put in stores, this information needs to be given to consumers, is actually increasing the outreach and giving consumers more information on the products that they're drinking. And what we tend to find is that a lot of the intake from beverages is from these over-counter um, uh, products as opposed to uh, products that you may be buying in the store. But if the stallholder at a coffee shop, for instance, is making the drink right there on the spot, how can they then be more transparent to the consumer about what just went into it? So you're seeing with certain um, stores and restaurants, they'll be they're putting up this information on um, uh, billboards, on nutrition statements in the stores. Mm. Um, many restaurants are now starting to provide this sort of information. So this is sort of where the nutri-grade um, approach is going, in that the uh, customers will be getting uh, or be getting that information through the uh, mandatory application of uh, the Nutri-Grade system. So um, I think that there's probably still some thinking needed as to how best this can be rolled out on these sorts of products. Um, but I think it's a, a step in the right direction to uh, provide the consumer with the information that they need to make a uh, balanced choice. So considering we have this in place and it will continue to be rolled out. The question is, will we then ever need a sugar tax, you think? <laughs> <laughs> you knew that question would come, I'm sure, Dr. Yeah, Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great question. And I think when it comes to sugar tax, um, again, it's mechanism. And it's mm. a mechanism that has been shown in certain um, countries to have um, an effect. And we've seen such taxes on many other types of products as well. Um, but I think, again, it's all a combination of how these types of approaches are used to give the consumer the, the uh, best choice, but also to make sure that we're doing things that can manage the uh, population issues around um, uh, intake of, of, in this case, sugar. And so sugar tax has, has a potential role to play um, as long as it's being brought in for the right reasons and being implemented uh, the right way. The thing is, Professor, one last thing, and I speak as a consumer here, when I tell you that sometimes even the labels are quite confusing or misleading. So something might say it's reduced fat, but then it's high sugar, so it's not entirely healthy, is it? So what do you think can be done in terms of getting companies to be clearer about labeling and also to enhance consumer education on nutrition? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point and I think that's what we've seen a little bit with the Nutri-Label approach is that companies have been looking at sugar reduction as an example for a long time and um, these sorts of efforts really do put um, the impetus back on the companies to say, okay, how do we better build our products to meet the need? But many of these companies were moving that way already because they understand that there are shifts in the trends and shift in the population need, whether it's from a health perspective or a choice perspective. Um, but what we're seeing a lot of as well in line with these types of approaches is also decisions around the advertising. And that's a key part about um, 
the Nutri-Grade and mm. other types of approaches is it's how do you advertise and inform the consumer? And we are seeing a lot more um, pressure on companies to do the right type of advertising, not targeting children, looking at um, how we're putting these drinks on the market for the right choice, the right type of product. Um, and that's a key part that needs to be um, better built. And we need to look at how we actually are having a conversation here in Singapore. Mm, thank you very much for that, Dr. Smith. I'm sure you would also agree that sometimes conflicting studies can confuse consumers too. I mean, one year they'll tell you egg yolks are bad for you. The following year they'll tell you egg yolks are actually okay for you. <laughs> how, to sure, deal, how, how to deal with something like that? Some tell me just... Take everything in moderation. Yeah, exactly. And I'd agree with that statement. I'd also say these studies confuse the scientists too. Mm. Everyone has different opinions, right? So it's a matter of looking at the data in its entirety and, as you say, then making balanced choices. Thanks very much, Dr. Benjamin Smith, Director of Fresh, the Future Ready Food Safety Hub. He's also Director of A-Star Innovations in Food and Chemical Safety Program. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.